and welcome to Everyday Design, the podcast about how design impacts your everyday life. I'm Rachel Fisher. And I'm Abigail Hall. And this month we're going to be talking about plants and the effect they have on design. But first, this month I, and I've been doing some reading this month. Excellent. I have been reading Architectural Digest, which is my go-to journal. There was a particular article that caught my interest, and it's because it was to do with the role of wedding venues architecturally. Now, I'm married, I've gone through the process of spending a disproportionate amount of time looking at the dress. You did slightly cheat. Did I cheat? You did cheat. You did actually have two separate wedding venues. Well, you know, why do it once when you could do it twice (laughs) for twice the price? Indeed. I say. Indeed. Um... And I, I must admit, I also have a bit of a vested interest. I've worked very closely with an exceptionally good uh, wedding shop, wedding club, and done some design work for them. So I always have a little interest when people talk about wedding venues. And this was an article saying, why are we not thinking about the architecture of the space that you get married in, or the design, interior yeah. design as well, um, as much as you think about the dress or the favours or the flowers, etc. And it basically lists a number of incredibly beautiful places, some of which are just good visually and, frankly, I think are just great for photos, which is a very, very long list. Um, But there was one, and it's the Wayfarer Chapel. It's in uh, California. It's a Frank Lord Wright um, chapel. It is floor-to-ceiling glass. Amazing. It has the structure of a Gothic cathedral, but made of glass. And for me, if you want to have that chapel environment, but you want to bring the outdoors in and you're haven't got the budget of a royal wedding where you can actually ship trees inside a building. It's really a rather good option for you. <laughs> not so good if you don't live in California, and I'm quite sure it's not cheap to get married in. But it did get me thinking about that, about yeah. actually, do we forget about the role of architecture and interior design in the wedding? Well, what's interesting is that... Um, when you think about the number of photos that you have in your house of your wedding... The architecture is actually an integral part of that because you're going to be looking at this place that you got married in forever. Possibly more even than, than, than the dress. Yes, I think more so. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying that it matters if you have a marquee and that's what you want because it's in the grounds of the family house. Mm-hmm. That is more important. But it's just every other element is talked about and so I was quite... I thought this was refreshing. And I think we all have very strong views about a dress we have very strong views about flowers and i think we could also have very strong views about the space no so that that's interesting so when when i got married uh a very long time ago my initial uh my initial idea was i was going to have an outdoor wedding i was going to get married on the grounds of my uncle's house uh grounds is a very strong word it's a large back garden um so i was going to get married on the grounds of of his house and we're going to have a marquee and then when we went literally the week of the wedding we went to meet the pastor who was going to be marrying us and we went to this uh beautiful uh 19th century emeritus so it was in Massachusetts we got married in this 19th century clapboard white New England chapel I don't the know kind the story of, so that's the kind, but that I visualize you in that space and we felt very strongly that we were not going to have a church wedding we were going to be married by someone from the church family thing um, but when, the minute he and I walked into this space, we said, actually, let's get married here. You resonated with we it. We absolutely resonated and with that's that space. What, and that's what good design is. It resonates with a part of you. You can't always articulate the reason why, 
but it makes you feel special and it makes you feel good. And what did you feel on your wedding day? I felt special and good. Exactly so. What have you been uh, doing this month? So I've been doing quite a lot of reading also. Good to be brainy. Yes. Uh, I've also been doing quite a lot of tweeting. So if Love you Twitter. are uh, on Twitter, I, I recommend you follow us and follow the conversation at EDD Podcast. Uh, but the article that I read this week was by Kate Wagner. And she wrote an article in Curbed, which was a website I haven't actually uh, experienced before. Yeah, but I'm going to... I will yeah. uh, I, I will be checking it out going forward. Um, and what she was talking about was similar to this she was talking about um when people buy a property for the one day a year that you are going to have your entire family over for thanksgiving or christmas Christmas. or whatever the perfect the perfect christmas but then actually when you do time in motion studies or the way in which people use uh use a house you probably use about a quarter of the property regularly and so people are buying properties that are far too big for their actual needs because that's you know it's a status symbol it's um it 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 tells you about who the person that you want to be as opposed to the life that you're actually living and what do they call these mansions they've got a name mcmansions mcmansions and one of the things that struck me reading it so as an american i have experienced these mcmansions i have been to one or two McMansions in the past. Um, and, and, I, and I do now as somebody who lives in the UK where actually we don't have enough space no. in our homes. Um, I just go, wow, what do you do with the third dining room? Or do you really need a cinema room and a media room? Surely cinema is media? One would have thought. I don't know. One would have thought. So, but I, I kind of felt like you can still take that back even, even if we aren't living in 3,000 square foot properties, even if you're living in a sort of 850 square foot property. It's about how do you make the property that you are going to be inhabiting fit your everyday life rather than the life that you want to live once a year in some sort of magical fairyland where you're going to get 16 people around a dinner table. Or in some kind of Instagram land where you want to have the 20 foot Douglas fir... <laughs> That in says, the dining this room, is Christmas. yes, that says I'm having a great Christmas. You must see this because look at the size of my tree. Actually, I've got 16 people around the dining table. I don't like any of them, but it looks good on Instagram. So I like to think that people aren't entirely living their lives through Instagram. I think some people are. Some people probably are. I don't know I doubt- the same people who own the McMansions, but I'm not entirely convinced that there are people who listen to this podcast. But well, your point is valid, not about the podcast listeners. We welcome all at EDD Podcast. Um, the point is valid, though. This this obnoxious use of space it is too much, and it's unnecessary. And there are a lot of people who have dining rooms who don't use them, even on a smaller scale or a second posh living room. The posh living room. What is that about? I don't know. I don't have one. All my rooms are posh. <laughs> of course they are. You're an interior designer. I, I would expect nothing less. Exactly. Um, and given I'm an interior designer, I have opinions on good design, bad design. Good design, bad design. What's been good and bad in your world? So good and bad in my world. Uh, in addition to reading, I have also been walking quite a lot uh, recently. Not always at the same time. And one of the things that I, I just has been really plaguing me uh, this month is... A bit of bad sign. Yeah, come on. Cobblestones. Oh, granite sets and my heels. And just, I don't wear heels anymore because I'm a parent and I have to be able to break into a flat out run at at pretty much any moment. But cobblestones, which even in flats, injure your feet. And even in flats, I will fall over on a set of cobblestones. And I just kind of think, what are you doing? 
Why are you pretending that there is some sort of historic past that I am required to experience in order to enjoy this space? In direct contrast to that, I uh, was in Star- I was up in Stockton uh, in the Tees Valley this this month, and I came across. Um, I've, I've I've also tweeted about it, but and I came across Green Dragon Yard, which is a square that's been. Uh, inserted into what used to be a, uh, a yard with a pub on one side, a warehouse on the other side. It's a, it's a really small enclosed space off the high street. And they have some really lovely paving stones, which are entirely flat, which is important when you're thinking about having an inclusive design, when you're thinking about people who may be bringing buggies, who may be in wheelchairs, who may have other kinds of you know mobility impairment or even or sight in, impairment. Or just in heels. Or... I would class that as a mobility impairment. I'm not going to lie. It's a mobility impairment. It is. So so this idea that we need to be able to find paving solutions which are both aesthetically pleasing but also functionally pleasant. And I, I don't find the experience of walking across a cobblestone pleasant. So the best example for me of this is in Covent Garden, okay. which is <laughs> a great space in many, many ways. And, you know, a fantastic example of how you can save uh, a, an older space and, and really give it a new life in the middle of a really busy city like London. But Covent Garden is entirely cobbled. But it's the reason I said it's hilarious, because if you sit at any of the many, many cafes and restaurants that there are around there and try and watch people get across the cobbles, it's hilarious. It is. Because it's not you. <laughs> because you are safely ensconced exactly. at a cafe. Um, it's it's very true. And I think any kind of... When it is truly historic and it's about ripping up something that was there originally, there's a conversation there. But if we are talking about landscape architects putting in a material because it it uh, gives a different palette, oh, we've got big pavers over here, so we'll put some granite sets over there. I don't think that's okay. That's not... Okay, I'm just going to stop you. When you say granite set, what do you mean? They are... They are cobbles. They're granite cobbles. Right. They're the the term that you use. And are they the ones that are kind of rounded at the top? Yes. Right. And you sometimes get them on the edge of a road. So you'll have tarmac and then you'll have three uh, cobbles, like look like cobbles. Yeah. Call them cobbles. Granite sets. As a, so, as a, as a occasional cyclist, mm. they drive me completely yes. crazy because my bicycle wheels do not negotiate yeah. those easily. Yes. So again, bad design on pretty much every level. You can have a beautiful design which is flat. And should be flat. Indeed. And accessible. So, Abby, what has been good and bad in your life this month? Well, it has been beautifully warm at the time of recording this. It is pretty much normal August. So I have been obsessed with water, like, <laughs> like the rest of the as, country. As everyone in, in um, Britain and indeed Europe. I read a Fantastic Times article. All the articles we've been talking about, by the way, today, we will show a um, link on our show notes. I read a fantastic article about our obsession with lugging around about four litres of water. Um, and I have been and doing that's the just same. just in my ankles. <laughs> no, that's from all the cobbles you've been walking on, darling. <laughs> Your ankles have turned. They're just swollen for that reason. Um, I have been, I got gifted a free uh, water bottle with work and it was molded plastic with a plastic lid and it's fantastic it holds a litre of water and I've been carrying it around with Excellent. me great mm, okay plastic uh, but it felt reusable it's very, it is it's reusable dishwasher friendly if you're okay with putting plastics in the dishwasher I know some people aren't 
But there was a fundamental fault with it because it was a um, softer molded plastic in the style of it. I show an image um, in our show notes again. It's what I would call a cycling bottle to fit oh, right, in a yeah. little cycling holder. Yeah. When you suck on the teat, what does one? <laughs> what do you call the top of a bottle of water? I think it is technically a teat. Okay, another technical term. Uh, the vacuum caused by that causes a bottle to shape, which means that the liquid leaks between the seal. Oh, I was going to say, it then makes a really uncomfortable noise when the there water... Is... The noise is uncomfortable, I give you that. But what's more uncomfortable is the white shirt you're wearing and the water that pours onto it and the realisation that you are in the tube and you now are doing a kind of solo wet t-shirt competition. <laughs> but at least if it's a solo wet t-shirt competition, you are winning. Do you know, I love that you can... Even my bad design, you make good. <laughs> you make good. <laughs> Okay, it's great design, guys. It's great. Wet t-shirt contests for everyone. <laughs> exactly. Um, good design. So I started looking at, okay, what other water bottles have people got? And this is not a full review. There are great plastic ones. Um, Camelback do one. It has a lanyard. It's large. It's round. It doesn't have the same issue. When you absolutely must wear a bottle around your neck. Um, short, like a wrist lanyard. Oh, okay. Is that same same word? I. Um. But my issue with that is, really, I have to now lug this round on my wrist. So my favourite, favourite one is, it's called a memo bottle. A memo bottle. It is either A4, A5. It's slim, it fits in your handbag. Downside, it's glass, so it's heavier. And I'm going to breakable? Very much breakable. And sometimes the lids, Sometimes the lids aren't dishwasher safe and I'm lazy, so that matters. So... Good design, bad design. There's something in there. There's, if you're out there, water bottle designers, I have I have notes. Please come <laughs> to me. So, I, but I have a question about this. So I think there's something around virtue signaling with water bottles oh, and with nice. all the reusable cups, coffee cups, water bottles, all of this kind of stuff. So in my office, which is incredibly progressive, clearly, um, in my office, people are wandering around with these big metal bottles. Mm. And I look at the metal bottles, and of course I would never ask to do this, but I am concerned about the mouth feel of drinking out of a metal water bottle. I, I genuinely, or hitting my teeth, I, I genuinely have a phobia of using these things because what if I accidentally slice my mouth open on a randomly jagged edge of a... I, 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 admit, I mean, I'm sure it would okay, be designed I admit, to anticipate that. I admit that this might be more, may say more about me than it does about the water bottle design. But I, but I, I genuinely am kind of thinking about this when I'm watching kind of half my office wandering around with these metal water bottles. And I'm thinking, well, A, how many of you are actually going to recycle it? So mm-hmm. that slightly undermines the yes. sustainability credentials. And B, genuinely, what is the mouth... Have you used one of these metal water bottles? I do know the ones you're talking about. and They, t- I, they scare me. I don't mind them, but I have a little thing that I believe that anyone who is concealing their liquid <laughs> in a bottle that isn't transparent probably is just drinking red wine. <laughs> Oh my god, my, my... Next time you're in a meeting, just decide who's drinking alcohol out of their metal bottles. <laughs> on which note, uh, let's move swiftly on to the other thing that I think has been really plaguing everyone during the heat wave that has been uh, across Europe and actually across North America as well, if my, my Facebook account is anything to go with. Um, which is the issue of green space and greenery in cities and also in inside and the use of plants in design. One of the things I've been really conscious of during the heat wave in London is that every park I walk by is brown. Completely brown. Completely brown. It's 
it's mind-blowing. Is it right that we don't irrigate it? Well, it probably is from a sustainability perspective. Mm. Um, there, you know, there, there are a lot of issues with using, uh, using excess water just to keep a lawn green when actually people need this for drinking. Mm. Um, or you know, farmers need this to irrigate their crops. Much so you know, the fact that my the fact that my park is a bit brown is probably fine. Um, but you realize when the grass has become entirely brown because of you know x number of days without any rain, uh, which is very unusual in England, which is famously a, a green and pleasant land. Um, you realize just how much you come to value the green space that you see every day. So much. And it's something that is true for all humans, right? So as human beings, we are biophilic. We are attracted to plants. We are attracted to green space. Uh, Studies have been done which show that if your eyes rest on green space, you find that really calming. Um, To the point where in one part of my office, I'm not kidding, uh, they have printed uh, wall prints of green spaces so if you're sitting at your laptop you look up and from your laptop you can see this green expanse stretching out in front of you it's a wall it's a blank wall does it have the same effect or do you do you just see it as a picture without it being a scientific study obviously well without it being a scientific study it's better than looking at a blank wall. It's than it is better than. Are looking, there any it, real plants between you and? Well, this is one of the inter- so absolutely. So one of the things I've been really conscious of since we uh, started talking about this is the number of plants in my office and in the offices that I that I go to on my on in my in my travels, um, and it's quite a lot quite a lot of you know office plants and you have to then employ entire armies of people to come and maintain the office plants because I don't know about you but I I am physically incapable of keeping an indoor plant alive oh yes I'm really good at killing them and uh, I'm pretty convinced that Facebook knows this about me because they are now advertising at me indoor houseplant services oh they started advertising to me houseplants you can't kill and then I was like, I will take you up on that <laughs> challenge. Is there a money back guarantee? Yeah, they're sure. Well, they would be bankrupt if there was with me. Um, no, I do agree with you. And the what you've just said there, and the, the evidence is very much there, the improving of air quality, I'm talking now about plants internally, Interior, yeah. um, the ability to regulate humidity, to improve your mood, to improve attention span, it's it's tested. The research is there. RHS.org, fantastic level of research about the impact of plants internally. Now, I'm not an expert on plants. I kill them. But I do know the power that it has on me and my well-being in the property. And I must admit, I've been, up until probably last year, relying on cut plants, cut flowers, to bring that... That life in, that that feeling, that resting eye feeling that makes me feel better. And it's a fundamental human trait. So if you think about um, in the bleak midwinter, when Mm -hmm. we bring the Douglas fir into the house and then we cover it in tinsel, that whole thing is about bringing life Life into... Life over death, the depth of winter. Exactly so. Um, And now, cut flowers aren't sustainable. It's actually, it is expensive to maintain a lot of cut flowers in the house, it's really when we think about the level of water, we're talking about water going into grass and it not being sustainable, the level of water for you to have a your five pound, ten pound bunch of roses that you get from Tesco have taken tens of litres of water per yeah. bud, let alone the fact that they have been flown in. Yeah. 
they have been flown in. Um, so Usually from Holland. Usually from Holland. So yeah. if we say that actually we know we like plants and flowers in the house, we know that there's a benefit to it, is there a but middle it, ground of fake plants? Oh, no, well, okay, so here we get into my, well, it's a bit of a thing. So I have an issue with fake pretty much anything. Mm. So I, I kind of operate on this design principle, which is that the thing should be the thing that it is. I like that. Right. So um, fake wood makes me feel slightly yes. creepy. Fake stone makes me feel slightly creepy. If you just have something that is a solid color and I know that it is linoleum, Fine. quite happy. Yes. Really happy with that. Um, I don't like things pretending to be something else. The thing about uh, the fake plants in the house, two things. One is that presumably it does give you the same kind of aesthetic impact. So it does give you the same idea of kind of, I'm gazing on green, I'm looking at the color green, I feel more rested. But on the other hand, it's not doing all of the things that plants do for us in terms of air quality. Air quality, balancing the humidity. Exactly. exactly. So that that would be my concern. So if I bring a bunch of fake plants in, and frankly, I then look at it and I'm like, this is another thing I have to dust and that's a very good point. And what I would say, because I do like, I think there is a role for a faux plant. I think if you say faux, it makes it less aggressive, <laughs> right? Yes, because anything in French just sounds better. <laughs> May we? <laughs> uh, so the one thing I would say, if you are going to use faux plants, and they are, they're, they are really, really popular right now, and the quality of them has gone up substantially, even from five years ago. No, I get that. Um, is to treat them as if they were real. And by that I mean you wouldn't leave your flowers on your dining room table for two weeks because, of course, they would wilt and die. And if you're going to have some fake flowers, you need to move them around in the same kind of time scale. So have them there for a few days. Then they need to be moved out. It means you get the visual stimuli of yep. it. You, you see it. You appreciate it. It doesn't get to the point of it being dusty and... But, but to come back to your sustainability point, what does that mean? So I'm basically throwing out a bunch of green oh, plastic. You, you put them into a cupboard, you rotate. Right. Like, so like a winter wardrobe. <laughs> oh, in England, we only have one wardrobe. That is absolutely it's true. Cardigan or no cardigan. And I wear the cardigan all day long. Indeed. That is true. Um, but <laughs> coming back to plants, and, and then now there's this uh, uh, fake plants, real plants. We're talking about Faux. flowers just then. Faux. My Faux. Um, actually, I believe it is only acceptable to have real plants. Flowers I'll accept faux, plants have to be real. That is an interesting distinction. Let us unpack that. <laughs> if it's in a pot and it has soil... It must be real. It has to be real. Okay. And, and, and why are you drawing that distinction? Because I think plants, you intrinsically move around less... So okay. immediately my rule of it being something that's movable becomes less practical. Um, also, I think part of looking at the studying around the benefit of plants, part of the benefit that you get is the nurturing it. A plant in a pot with soil is easier to look after than a f something that is flowering. I know plants flower. Feel free, any botanists out there, to tell me everything that I'm saying is wrong. Um, <laughs> And I believe that the part of the nurturing, part of the trying to keep the plant alive, is part of what you get your well-being from. That's true. And I think, 
again, so studies have shown that people who do gardening, so in a garden, even if it's a if it's on a balcony, that actually having your hands in the soil, dealing with the plant and taking care of it, that is, you know, that, that sort of care for others is something that's really good for you. And and also um, something that has kind of a meditative quality as well. It is. And I think there's something about uh, reorienting your plants to the sunlight. So is it, does it need a little bit of care and attention? And, and, and yeah, exactly. That kind of care for Nurture. the plant. To ha- yes. Nurturing the plant. What's interesting to me as a kind of, as a, as a more sort of urban designer mm-hmm. is the role that plants and green spaces play in the city and what you see people doing in terms of gathering around the one bit of green space, public green space, yes. that kind of thing. Uh, the High Line. In New York. In New York. Which has been ca- uh, copied by pretty much every city that has a disused railway line that must have a high line. But the high line, you know, taking a piece of redundant, grey, hard infrastructure and planting it up and making it a, a green finger that runs through the lower part of Manhattan that people can walk you know, you can walk along what was previously a transit corridor is again because you're able to walk along this thing. In North London, where I live, there's a uh, place called Parkland Walk, which basically is a disused railway line, which runs from Herringay, uh, Finsbury Park, where I live, out to uh, Highgate Wood. Yes. And it's an amazing space. I will put up photos, many, many of my own photos. Uh, I, so where... You're walking through this and you're in the middle of London. You're in the middle of North London. You are walking through a highly built up area. And there are parts where the tree canopy completely envelops you. And you could be anywhere. And it's beautiful. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's incredibly restful. It's incredibly peaceful. Um, Last year, I ran the London Royal Parks Half Marathon, which genuinely nearly killed me. Um, 13 miles is enough. (laughs) Without a shadow of a doubt. Indeed. But what was amazing about it was, so A, in the training for running the the London half, I ran through pretty much all of the parks of North London, including uh, including Parkland Walk, but also uh, Lordship Recreation Ground, which is one of the best, best kept secrets of North London in in the middle of Tottenham, which is one of the most deprived areas of North London. Um, Lordship Rec is this amazing green space that's had huge amounts of investment. And there are different zones within it. So you've got this huge kind of moorland. You've also got a paddling pool. You've got a lake with ducks and swans. You've got a playground. You've got a sustainable building. I've never even heard of it. This is genuinely one of my favorite places. It's it's a place that I never would have discovered had I not um, taken six months out to have my children and therefore desperate to find places to push the buggy so that they will sleep. Um, But also uh, then being able to revisit that when I was training for the the half marathon and, and, and run from my house to that and then back again, which is about 10k. So you're doing quite well. It's a good, good training route. It's a good, good training route. Um, so I was running through kind of the parks of North London, and then in the actual run itself, you're running through the Royal Parks. Yes. Through central London. So you start in Hyde Park, you go around, you go through the mall, you go uh, St. James James's. Park. It's yep. just, it's an incredible route um, that takes you through all of these really kind of important green spaces in London. London is one of the most green cities in in Europe and probably one of the most green capital cities in the world. But historically green. So when I go yeah. to St. James's, particularly, although in um, in Holland, in Hyde, Kensington yeah. Gardens, the scale of the trees, they were planted by someone who has been dead for hundreds of years. Yeah. 
and you that sense of heritage that I get, it takes me away from myself, which is something that's far beyond a, a pot plant that you have, you know, on your windowsill. It makes me feel like I'm walking in the footsteps of a previous generation. Yeah. The wide boulevards flanked by trees, you know, couples sitting under a tree and having a sharing a picnic. It's no different from what happened a hundred years ago. That's really beautiful. And I think it is beautiful and I think it is poetic. And I think parks make me a better person because it makes me think now that. I think I think the thing for me about parks and also about trees and street trees in particular is that they make a place feel loved. Yes. So when those trees are there, you feel like the place is loved and the place is lived in because somebody in the same way. So so you say it's different from from a pot plant, but it's not. It's exactly the same thing. It's that we as a society no, and we as a community it. we are nurturing yes. these plants. We are taking care of them. So actually, when you see the green space that has gone brown, the reason that you feel that little twang is because the space hasn't been nurtured yeah it's almost like it's our our group responsibility and look at it which in a way i think also is why when we see the park at the end of the day when there's all the rubbish and litter we feel that same oh it's not been looked after and i think i i so i one of the things that i i value so highly about living in london is that we have access to world-class parks but one of the things that we know is that um, the parks, not just in London, but across the UK, it, access to good quality green spaces is not kind of equally distributed. So there's there's a social justice element to this as well. So the poorer the neighbourhood, the higher the indices of deprivation in the neighbourhood, the more likely it is that you will have poor quality green spaces if you have green spaces at all. And that's really problematic when you understand the importance of green spaces in terms of people's mental health and well-being. So people who are spending time in parks, people who have access to good quality green spaces and therefore are attracted to them, walk through them, etc. They have they have a better quality of life. They have better mental health outcomes. And this isn't this isn't new knowledge. This isn't new knowledge. And this isn't and genuinely this isn't uh, just in the UK. In Japan, they have a uh, a, a term, and I, I won't even pretend to be able to pronounce it or know what it is. They have a term which basically is about like tree bathing. So the idea that what you do is you go into nature and you experience it. And this is something that is, you know, we we are we are animals, right? As as human oh, beings, we are we are creatures, yes. we are animals and we need to experience nature in order to find a sense of calm and peace. And so if you go into um, a forest, or if you go into a park, if you go into any kind of natural environment, you your blood pressure goes down, your breathing slows. All of those health, benefits. all of these health benefits, it can have genuine and real impact on people's lives. And if you are somebody who's living in a very high stress environment, and living in poverty is a high stress environment, you need to be able to go into these spaces which give you that sense of calm. And as I mean, you say go into them or transition through them. Yes. So it might not be an active choice that you have the time to go, oh, I'm feeling a bit stressed, I'll go down to my local park. But if my you know my, my road is lined with trees yeah. or that environment is around me all the time, you're, you're getting it. Do you know what? Uh, when I changed jobs a few uh, about 18 months ago, I had to change my commuting route. And I had to go from taking a bus from my house to my office, which took about an hour, um, to I was working a little bit further out, so I now have to take the tube, which anyone who's ever experienced 
the tube or indeed the New York subway or really any underground yes, train any station. any metro system. Any metro system. It is a stressful way oh, to yes. commute. And I made a choice. I made a choice that I am going to walk from my house to the tube, but I'm going to take the long route and I walk through Finsbury Park every morning. So every morning I have a 20 minute walk through a park, which gets me to the tube. It's beautiful. And I have spent an hour or plus, depending on when my children get up, child wrangling yes. and dealing with them and getting them dressed and uh, watching Peppa Pig and it's horrible. And then I drop them off at nursery and I start walking. And I walk for 20 minutes and I walk through the park. And then by the time I get on the tube, I am calmer than I would have been if I'd gotten straight on the tube. And, you know, that's better for me. A, a, a scientific study, I'm sure, can substantiate all of that. But anecdotal evidence is... <laughs> Why use science when you have anecdotes? Exactly. Says the creative to the urbanist. Indeed. <laughs> no, but and, and it, but it's funny. It, it wasn't a conscious choice that I'm... I mean, it was a conscious choice, but it wasn't a choice that I made saying, I'm going to lower my blood pressure now. It was just... It was subconscious. You know what? This is what I need. I need this space of time in which I transition from being a mum and being somebody who is at the beck and call of two very demanding three-year-olds to being the professional person who is able to engage. And I get to the tube and I get on the tube and I download my emails and I'm dealing with my emails on the tube and I become Rachel the professional human being. Not Rachel the mum. And you wouldn't have that if that same 20-minute walk was along a a lovely flanked by uh, glass buildings concrete paving you wouldn't have that same no i don't think transition, i would transition that same it creates yeah you're right it creates regeneration it creates a of yourself in a space yeah there you go plants and design in summary good everyday design everyday design indeed uh, so now i think actually quite a good segue to think about uh, this month's designing together uh, this month, again, we decided to uh, watch something on TV. So those of you who are in the UK have access to BBC iPlayer. Well, you should if you are paying your licence fee. Pay your licence fee. Pay your licence fee. Indeed. Um, so on the BBC iPlayer, you can find, uh, if you go into search, uh, building sites and Building Sites is a series that was done, it looks like through the kind of late 80s, early 90s, of sort of 10-minute snippets of famous people talking about a building or a place. Um, and it's and it's interesting. I, I don't know if it would be made today, but it's the kind of thing that... It should be made today. It should be made today, but it's the kind of thing that... You Are know, you listening, editors? What, <laughs> what do you call it? Commissioning editors. Commissioning editors. So it's the kind of thing that is just... Re- well, if you're us, it's particularly interesting. But, um, you know, you've, you've got Janet Street Porter at Piers Goff's mm. house, uh, the architect. You've got... Um... This was series four, episode six. So a substantial amount of these episodes were made. And this particular one is to do with the Alton Estate. Yes. Right next to Richmond Park. Um, I as an interior designer and someone who lives in London but actually just kicks around parks with my dog and doesn't really pay attention to what happens outside, hadn't heard about this whatsoever. And my first 
reaction when I saw an a man who I hadn't really paid, paid attention to who he was start talking about this was, oh, okay, so this is a, a, a brutalist estate in London. Is it a blight on Richmond Park? Yeah, I think I would have said that when I first started watching it. <laughs> then I found out that two or three beautiful large Georgian properties were knocked down to make it. And this person is extolling the virtues of how Palladian, in actual fact, these huge, brutalist blocks are. Palladia would not recognise no. these blocks. I'm no, just put that there, was, there. there was regular verticals, not quite columns. Um, but actually, the whole time I was watching, I was very interested to hear Rachel's thoughts on it. <laughs> because sometimes when I watch programmes that are pure architecture... I'm not really the person. I, I'm as, as much as the next person interested to hear someone's views. But I was really interested to hear what Rachel would think about this. So the person that was talking about the Alton estate in Roehampton was Richard Rogers, uh, now Lord Rogers of Riverside. Uh, Richard Rogers is uh, someone I've met a couple of times. I actually, interestingly, I was, I was on a panel with him. I was on a, I was on a panel. Uh, I was about 12 months pregnant with the twins. And I'm asked... <laughs> that's, that's medically possible, it, but okay. It, it, well, it, yeah. felt, it felt medically possible. Um, and I'm on this panel, and I'm asked to come in and talk uh, on a panel of Lord Richard Rogers, Lord Andrew Adonis, um, Lord Bob Kerslake, <laughs> somebody and, else... And Baronet and, Rachel Fisher. Yeah, oh, no, no, and me. <laughs> and I'm like, so not only am I bringing the average age down by about 35 to 50, 50 years. Um, I am the only person speaking on this panel who has not been honoured by Her Majesty the Queen yet. Thank you. Uh, but it was... Anyway, so Lord Rogers um, is somebody who is incredibly important in architectural history, but actually urban history in the UK. So history, the present. Yes. He's incredibly important in the present. He was the architect of the Lloyds Bank building, um, also the Leaden Hall building, which is across from the Lloyds Bank building, also known as the cheese grater. Yes. The thing about Rogers is that he's really well known for kind of turning architecture inside out. He was Pompidou. the architect who did exactly the Pompidou yep. Centre uh, in Paris. And I, I have some interesting criticisms of the Pompidou, probably for later. Um, but Rogers is somebody who really understands the importance of how you integrate community and design and basically being able to in, ensure that a building is responding to its context. Um, and so, so listening to him talk about this, oh, and, and, and also importantly, importantly in my life, uh, he read, uh, led the uh, Richard Rogers Task Force in 1999, uh, which was a government task force looking into the state of urbanism in the UK. This led to the 2000, I'm such a geek, this led to the I love it. <laughs> You're getting your geek on so much. Go on. Okay. So, because everyone's interested in, in, in urban policy history. Uh, so, so this led to the 2000 urban white paper uh, about which I wrote my, my master's thesis. Um, but so, so he talks a lot about the importance of design in people's everyday lives. He talks a lot about the importance of how design impacts people's lives and how the buildings, you know, to, to horribly paraphrase um, Winston Churchill, we, we create our buildings and thereafter our buildings create us. So, so the interaction between people and public space and the built environment, which is absolutely at the core of what I do for a living. 
So watching Richard Rogers as a younger man before he's Sir, before he's Lord, before oh, he's any of these things, this is maybe he's, just, he's just a kind of famous architect. Yes. And he's clearly really uncomfortable in front of the camera. <laughs> he's much more comfortable now, actually, when you see him do stuff now. But um, And he's talking about the Alton Estate as something that he looked at as a younger architect and said, this, this is what we should be doing. And I think he thought this could be our Merce, uh, Marseille Cabousier, yeah, yeah. our version of it. And, it. and 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 it is. That's the thing. And it is our version of that. And what was interesting to me watching it is that under, under, watching a master architect unpack the 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 thinking behind what went into that estate was fascinating. I agree. As an architecture geek, that was fascinating. It was fascinating. It, so on the one hand... about materials, yeah. um, the alignment of the buildings, yeah. the size of the buildings, the orientation, pure All of those things. And I would go a step further. I would say that's pure urbanism. Yes. That is absolutely what you do when you're undertaking a master plan of an area. But what it wasn't was a domestic architecture. Okay. What it wasn't was really thinking about and understanding the way in which people live their lives, what that creates in terms of a space, and then how you create a building around that. He didn't really address that, and I found that really disappointing. But I wonder if that was because it was a 10-minute segment and he was going to talk about the thing that he loved the most, which was the purity of the design and the fact that it was a greenfield space that was used and these... Pure, actually very pure, and in their stark, brutalist way. They no, they and and to be fair, actually, when I'm looking at them purely aesthetically, they are beautiful. It is a you know so so what listening to him describe the white towers on the green hills that is beautiful. It is that's lovely. It's like a cameo. It was it was romantic language, and even I started looking at them with different eyes. But my whole time I was watching it, I was saying. What about the user experience? Absolutely. What about the people that live there? There was two mentions of it. One was shown a, a rather jolly, nice 1960s marketing type image of people all gazing out the window going, look at this lovely green space. Um, and another occasion he went in where he did kind of, well, they are quite small, but good windows. Um, <laughs> but look a, at the view. And for me, having spoken to you now about it a little bit, I do acknowledge that at the point that they were built, this was would have changed people's lives. Absolutely. I'm looking at it from my eyes and my experience now. And what I know a user wants from a property. And more than anything, what this made me want to do is go back. It made me want to visit. It made me want to have 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 Richard go back now. He's in his eighties. You know, go back and 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 revisit Roehampton and see how it's faring as an estate. So what 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 we've seen with some of the housing estates that were built during that period, during the kind of late 60s, early 70s, is that you know the first generation that moved in loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, because they were coming from slums Actual into, slums. you know, where you were sharing a bathroom between four families into somewhere where you had your own kitchen, your own bathroom. It your, was clean, it was dry. It that was whole warm. idea of, you know, better living through modern design. Fantastic. Tick, and tick, as tick. designers, we yes. have to you know, sign that up all day long. Absolutely. Um, but then do you manage to keep that community spirit going from the first kind of pioneers, if you will, who've moved in to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation? How does that actually work? And I think 
if anything, for me, that, that does make me you know, say, hello, commissioning editors at the BBC. Let's go back. Let's have a look. Let's let's see how these places are, are doing now. And what can we learn from what we built to what we're going to be building now? And the one thing I'm really interested by, because they made a big thing about the village, the local village. Did yeah. It, did it maintain a local village feel? Or did actually building this huge estate... And what's estate... the interaction between the people who live in the estate yeah. and the people who live in the historic yeah. village? Commissioning editors, there's lots of content there. Um, <laughs> Presenters are available. <laughs> I recommend Rachel. She really knows her stuff. <laughs> I wanted to hear from you for a reason, and oh. this is exactly the reason why. Now, next month, um, my homework is going to be lots of buying interior architecture elements for my flat because it's being refurbed and you also am experiencing what can only be described as a micro refurb (laughs) refurb refurb it's ripping out and starting again (laughs) um so i think we're both going to have lots of uh, experiences to share indeed and 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 possibly some 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 top tips on what not to do. Mostly what when, not to do. Uh, when some in... good design, I hope. But I think we might experience a little <laughs> bit of bad design. If it's anything to go by with my builder so far, what we will do is continue to uh, post things on Twitter, on Instagram. We'll be sharing our experiences, showing some before and after photos. Um, covered all off on the website um, and through the show notes. So please do follow us on. Uh, www.eddpodcast.com also available on Twitter and Instagram at eddpodcast and this podcast will hopefully very soon assuming we manage to work out technology be available wherever good podcasts are downloaded until next time everyday design everyday design everyday design